Hey, GCC family, hope you guys are doing well today. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here online, whether you're on Facebook or YouTube or somewhere else. We're thankful for you. We miss you. We love you. Um, if you need anything from us, please don't hesitate to reach out at uh, our contact page at gcclw.org, gcclw.org. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, yeah, with that, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we praise you. You're good. You're glorious. You're awesome. We love you. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in our lives. Lord, that we would truly become more patterned after you, just like the scriptures say that we would be imitators of Christ, that we would do the things that Jesus did. Lord, I pray that we would. Lord, that you would empower us, that you would equip us, that you would remind us, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, to be your representatives, your ambassadors here on planet Earth. Lord, we praise you once again and lift your name on high. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You know, uh, one of the most important things for me is fairness. I deeply desire for things to be fair. Uh, growing up with two brothers, uh, my parents did a really good job uh, trying to make the big things fair, things like Christmas and birthdays and, and graduations and that kind of thing. Uh, but ultimately, <laughs> uh, when you grow up with two brothers, uh, there, there's bound to be things that are just not fair, uh, especially when you're growing up in a world where things just aren't fair. I remember one of the things I cared the most about was whenever my mom would be, bring treats, desserts home from the grocery store. It didn't happen super, super often. And so whenever it did happen, it was special. And, and my brothers and I used to bicker and fight about what our fair share was. When, when, whether it be ice cream bars or fruit snacks or whatever, we, we desired strongly uh, to the point of conflict <laughs> many times uh, that we would get our fair share. And it got so extreme, at one point we discovered that one of my younger brothers, I don't remember which one, uh, was stashing away his fair share of, of whatever treat got taken home, assuming it didn't need to be refrigerated, in his room somewhere, I think. And uh, just to make sure that me and my other brother wouldn't get our grubby little hands on it. <laughs> uh, fairness was so important, and it is so important. I love fairness. Uh, it's such a deep value for me that it's caused even issues in my in my marriage. Um, you can ask my wife Taylor. I just I long desperately for things to be fair, and when things aren't fair in our marriage or or in our world, I just I get frustrated. I get brokenhearted. I get irritated. I just want things to be fair so bad. <laughs> you know, I don't cry very often, but. If there is a movie that can make me cry, it, it's it's when people who don't deserve something, when, when an innocent group of people are, are suffering at the hands of some oppressor, whether it be uh, in the context of racism, like that movie Radio, it just makes me cry, or, or, or in the context of, of, of oppression of other kinds. I just, man, uh, there's this sense in me, there's this desire in me that the world would just be more just than it is. I long for it. I desire it. And I think it's probably true for all of us, right? We all long for this world to be better than it is. 
some of us more strongly than others, but we, we all have a sense. We all get frustrated, I think, to some degree or another. Maybe you're not very frustrated, but I, I'm sure you at least take note of the fact that things aren't fair, especially when it affects you, when someone cuts you off in traffic, that wasn't fair, or, or, or when someone else at work gets a promotion and you don't, that wasn't fair. Fairness. We're constantly facing this reality in our world because our world is just not fair. Like, you know, I remember in the news a few years ago, there was a, uh, the, the nation was up in arms because some kid got away with sexually assaulting a, a young lady on a college campus. And um, anyone else who had been in that situation would have received a much more stringent penalty. But this kid, he, he got away with it somehow. He did the crime and, and didn't do the time. And our, our, the people of our nation were crying out against that, saying, that's not right. That's not okay. That's not justice. It's interesting to me how our sense of fairness and our sense of justice go hand in hand, that, that for something to be fair it, it is almost for it also to be just. And, and the same is true opposite. For something to be just is, is almost for it to be fair. And we have this deep internal, internal sense that, for example, if someone does the crime, they also got to do the time. That's fair. What's fair is also what's just. And I've, I, I'm kind of reminded... Uh, as I've been preparing this sermon of this scene that happens at the end of the movie National Treasure. Uh, it's, it came out a long time ago, like early 2000s, but it was one of my favorite movies growing up, and, and I watched it a lot. And uh, in case you haven't seen it in a really long time, National Treasure is about a, a treasure hunter named Ben, and Ben embarks on this journey of discovering this massive uh, mythical American treasure that's buried somewhere in the United States. And uh, he partners up with these this team of people and, and ends up these this team of people, like most of them are evil except for just one other guy. And he ends up partnering up with this one other guy after this other team of people tries to kill him. And, and all throughout the course of the movie, he's running from this evil group of people. And then he also steals the Declaration of Independence as like one of the things to do uh, uh, to, to get to the treasure. <laughs> and, and so he's being chased by the cops and, and these evil people. And it's a Disney movie. So they get to the end of the movie. And of course, they find the treasure. And uh, Ben comes out of this massive pit in the ground where the treasure is. And, and, and the FBI rolls up on him. And uh, they, Ben starts talking with the FBI about what he wants to have happen. So obviously Ben, he stole the Declaration of Independence. He's got to go to jail. That's the crime. So Ben starts to barter and try to weasel his way out. And uh, the FBI agent who's talking to him just isn't having it. And he, he, he says these words that just resonate in my ears when it comes to this subject. The FBI agent says, Ben, someone's got to go to jail. And uh, Ben's like, well, I think I can help you with that. And the final joke of the movie, so to speak, kind of, is that uh, the evil guys who, who who stabbed Ben and this other guy in the back at the beginning of the movie end up going to jail instead of Ben and this other guy. You know, obviously, I'm not sure how that would have gone down in real life. My guess is that Ben probably wouldn't have gotten away consequence-free. <laughs> All that to say, even as I'm thinking about this, this story, uh, my sense of fairness and justice is like, huh, uh, maybe, 
Ben should have gone to prison. I mean, he did do the crime. Isn't it right that he would do the time? Today, that's going to be the, the thing that we focus on. That, that's our question. If you do the crime, shouldn't you have to do the time? And, and we're going to ask, like, how does God look at justice and how does God look at fairness? And in order to do that, we're going to be continuing our series in Luke with Luke chapter 23. Crazy. Only one week left. We, we've gone through this for 24 weeks, more than half a year because we took pause for coronavirus. But all that to say, uh, we're going to be continuing in Luke 23. And if you have been reading ahead by chance, um, or if you just know off the top of your head what Luke 23 is about, it's about the death or the, the, the trial and then subsequent death, crucifixion of, uh, of Jesus. Um, and, I, and I really want to walk through Luke 23 together because it's such an important passage. And don't worry, I'll explain how all of this re relates to justice and fairness after we finish walking through the passage. Anyway, it's an intense passage. It kind of begins in Luke 22 with Jesus' rest. Um, by the end of Luke 22, the, the, the religious leaders have gathered together and they're calling Jesus a blasphemer. And, and uh, these people furiously, at the beginning of Luke 23, are, are taking Jesus before Pilate. Pilate, of course, is the, the Roman leader in the region. And uh, we read this beginning in verse 1. Luke 23, beginning in verse 1. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be, the, to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. Upon hearing this, uh, Pilate basically hears that, that Jesus is from Galilee and he thinks, hey, this is not something that I have to deal with. And it just so happened that the Jewish kind of governor of Galilee, a guy named uh, Herod Antipas was in Jerusalem at that time. So, so Herod says, you know what? Or so Pilate says, you know what? We should send, we should send Jesus over to Herod and see what Herod decides to do. And Herod was the 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 son of of that Herod the Great. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great, who who famously had that exchange with the three wise men and and was the guy who caught, like, sentenced all the babies in Jerusalem to die uh, at that one time at the beginning of Jesus's life. So this is his son, and Herod Antipas is just really, he's not a great dude. <laughs> but it makes sense that Pilate would send Jesus to Herod Antipas because Herod was the basically the governor in that area. So they go, and while Jesus is there, Herod's like, I'm so excited that you're here. You should show me a sign. Like, basically, he's looking for a miracle. Herod Antipas wants Jesus to prove that he is Jesus by, by giving some kind of miracle, which he doesn't get. And then Herod's asking all these questions, and, and Jesus doesn't answer any of them. And by the end of this exchange, Jesus is being mocked by Herod and his kind of, like, his whole crowd and his whole entourage. And they throw, like, a piece of fancy clothing on, on Jesus and send him out the door back to Pilate. 
when Jesus gets back to Pilate, Pilate calls together all of his accusers and, and is like, guys, come on, guys, look, I don't see anything wrong with Jesus. Clearly, Herod doesn't see anything wrong with Jesus. Otherwise, he would have done something about it. This guy's innocent of any crime, for sure innocent of any crime deserving death. My plan is just to punish him and send him on his way. But the crowd is not happy. These religious leaders are not happy. So we read again, beginning in verse 18. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown in prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has he, this man committed? He I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then released. But the loud shouts, but with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one who they asked for and surrendered Jesus to their will. This whole exchange is really intense and, and, and really bizarre. But the thing that I want us to take note of is just how much they hated Jesus. So much so that they would want a murderer released among them. I don't know about you guys, but I don't hate anybody enough to want a murderer in my community. That's just not something that I, I it's just not something that I, that's not a trade I'm willing to make. They hated Jesus. As the journey to the cross continues, uh, we still we meet a few more characters. Uh, the, the first is Simon of Cyrene, who helps to carry Jesus's cross. And, and we also meet some women who are weeping bitterly over what's happening to Jesus. And Jesus does, uh, gives them a little prophecy thing. You can go back and read that later. Uh, and then we also learn, of course, that there's going to be two criminals crucified with Jesus that day. We read again, beginning in verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, ha, ha, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is God, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar and said, If you're the king of Jew the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. Crucifixion, as we have discussed many times uh, in our church, was this excruciatingly long, painful, suffering process. Uh, essentially, you, you would have nails sunk through your wrists, through the median nerve, which is this this powerful nerve that like gives senses to your fingers and stuff. It, this very intense pain, and and it was a it was a really we don't get the picture very often because of how Hollywood depicts it and and how uh, uh, like our our statues and our paintings depict it, but. Crucifixion was actually a very movement-oriented thing. You would have to, in order to breathe, you would have to raise yourself up by your wrists with the nails in them and, and, and then let yourself down. It was this excruciatingly painful process, 
horrible suffering process. And eventually people would die because they got exhausted and weren't able to breathe and they would die of asphyxiation. In the moments after these verses, uh, one of the criminals begins to mock Jesus. In the ESV, we read that the, the criminal railed at Jesus. The other criminal, of course, rebukes the first one saying, this man is innocent. We're guilty. This guy's innocent. And then that second criminal asks Jesus to remember him, to which Jesus replies, I will. Today you will be with me in paradise. And then after this conversation, we read beginning in verse 44. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to, get to witness this saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching all these things. The death of Jesus is this intense moment. The sky goes dark. The temple in curtain is torn in two that divided the holiest of holies from the rest of the temple, signaling that, that God is now uh, available to all people because of the death of Jesus on the cross. And uh, ultimately, after this, uh, the, this moment, the, the, I'm particularly compelled by the testimony of this centurion who, who looks at what has happened as an outsider from an outside perspective and says, Oh man, this is something serious. It, it compels him to praise God, which is, which is a strange thing. But I think, he, I think he has awe for God, recognizing that, that this, guy, this guy was someone special. The chapter closes, of course, with Joseph of Arimathea going and retrieving Jesus' body and then placing it in a new tomb that had been carved out of the side of a hill. You know, a lot happens in these 56 verses. We see Jesus go from trial to the cross to death to the tomb. And as we look at this passage, I think we, we're faced with this reality. We, we, we have to come to the conclusion that this whole process was extremely unfair to Jesus. This was not justice on display. This was wrath. This was hatred on display. These people hated Jesus, and, and they ultimately got their way. We have heard this story time and time and time again as followers of Jesus, and I think that we have become almost desensitized to the absolute display of injustice that's happening here. I invite you to look back on this story with fresh eyes. The, the reason they hated him in the first place is because he was preaching the good news of the kingdom because he was coming against their traditions because he was holding them accountable as hypocrites he jesus spends the the vast majority of his ministry helping and healing and teaching and and and, and teaching a compelling message of of care and love for others they arrest him under the cover of night which is I think against the law, if, if I'm remembering correctly, but at the very least, it's this very sub subversive, like behind cloaked doors kind of thing. 
They put him in front of two different leaders, a, a Roman leader and a Jewish leader, and both of these leaders come to the conclusion that he's an innocent dude. And then they just murder him. Seriously. You just can't really get more unjust than this. It's just completely not fair. Absolutely not justice. An innocent man dying for no real crime. If we didn't have the rest of the story, I think we would look at this as, as thoughtful observers and say, what in the world? This makes no sense. But of course, thankfully, we do have the rest of the story. And, and today I want to draw our attention to the rest of the story. Uh, actually, I want to draw our attention to one of my most favorite sections of scripture. And, and I apologize in advance, it's a little bit dense, but it's so beautiful. Uh, we're going to look at Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Again, that's Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. And uh, I'm just, I'm excited to share it with you because it's just an I don't know, it's an exhilarating passage about, about God and his justice. Here's what it says. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. So, in essence, Jesus is this, this fulfillment of the law and the prophets. This righteousness, this counted right, right by Godness is given through faith in Jesus to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Jews are not more specially saved than Gentiles. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in desperate need of being saved. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice, as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. So Jesus was, was sacrificed on our behalf as an atonement to take our place. He, he took on the punishment. He dealt with the consequences of sin. Here's, here's what I really want us to hear. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Now really listen here. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Look at that. How amazing is that? This passage is saying God justified us through faith in Jesus, that Jesus was the saving the savior of the world, that, that his death was the atonement. He, he paid the price for our sins and he did this all to show what he says is justice. We look at the death of Jesus with an honest lens and we come to the conclusion that he was innocent. He didn't deserve to die. We see his death not as just, but, but, it, but, but, but it's just the opposite. This is not what justice looks like. But God sees it from a whole other perspective. Instead of seeing Jesus' death as not justice, God defines his justice by this action. Look at verse 26. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the one who justifies. 
In other words, somehow God's definition of justice, God's perfect justice includes him dying for you and me. Dying for our sins, taking our place. That's, that's amazing. That, that's utterly and completely amazing and compelling. We look at justice and say, you do the crime, you do the time. God looks at justice and says, you did the crime, I'm going to do the time. That's phenomenal. We look at Luke 23 and see one of history's most unjust, uh, uh, most famous examples of injustice. Obviously, there are many, 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 many more. Uh, but there, there's this famous example of injustice. And here God is saying, no, 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 no. My justice is on display here. I'm, I'm showing the world what I say is justice. Somehow, his justice includes him dying for us. That's not fair. But for God, it is just. Of course, we know from other famous scriptures like John 3.16 and so on that, that God was compelled to do this out of love, out of his love for us. He so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Or, or Romans 5, 8, but God shows his great love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love is such an important part of this story. But, but the thing that excites me the most is, is how this story or how this passage defines justice. And the world's religions were lambasted by this idea that you can somehow be good enough, that, that you can somehow dig yourself out of the pit of sin and, and, and disgustingness and human brokenness by just doing things the right way. If you just say the right words or do the right things or, or, or give the right amount of money or, 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 I mean, you fill in the blank. If you just do the right stuff, you can eliminate this debt. But that couldn't be further from the truth. This idea that you could somehow pay off your debt to God, it's just, it's just not possible from the Christian worldview. And ultimately, this, this false belief that you can pay off your debt, it, it, it leads people to the false belief that God is this kind of God who looks at sin and, and, and he just kind of looks over it. He, he kind of shoves it under the rug. He's just kind of this God who, who, who forgets about it. Brothers and sisters... Like I said, this, this couldn't be further from the truth. Our sin is not just something that can be looked over. You can't just shove it into the rug. You can't just throw it out. You can't just forget about it. And our God knows that, obviously. So instead of just pretending that sin is no big deal, someone's got to go to jail. Our God says, you know what? Instead of you going to jail... I'm going to go to jail. I'll pay the penalty. I'll take on your punishment. You did the crime. I will do the time. It's epic. It's one of the most compelling things. That, and it leads me to believe that, that our God is so consistent, especially compared to the other world's religions. He, he doesn't just ignore the problem. He deals with it. He deals with the consequences of sin. The picture that I get uh, in my mind is like, and I've shared this with many of you before, but the picture I get in my mind is like of a judge uh, standing before you. You're, you're on trial. You've, 
you're on trial for a crime that you did in fact commit, okay? So let's just say you blew up a building and killed a bunch of people, okay? Like that's the crime that you're on trial for and, and the proof is in the pudding. Uh, the, the judge says you're guilty and he slams down his gavel on the podium. Now our definition of justice would be you get hauled away in chains over to death row and you just await your death there until the day that it comes. But here's what God does. Look at God's form of justice. He says, he bangs his gavel down on the desk, you're guilty. But then he stands up and he comes down off the podium and he stands in front of you and he says, don't put the chains on that guy, put the chains on me. And the bailiff put the, puts the chains on him and he, the judge, goes and he is put to death in your place. What epic love. What extraordinary justice. This is what God calls justice. That he would be the judge, but also die in our place. And I must say, if you've ever wondered about why you have to follow Jesus in order to be saved, this is why. Because it's only through Jesus that this this canister, this this list of, of sins, this, this sin issue in your life can be dealt with. Because Jesus says, hey, I'm going to take your sin and I'll give you my righteousness. If we don't have Jesus, I don't have any person to give my sin to. And therefore the sin is on me and I endure the punishment. Thus, hell. Whoever said life isn't fair knew what they were talking about. There are very few statements that are as universally true around the world as life isn't fair. It's just not. We long, of course, to see it be more fair, to see it be more just. We, we long to see uh, people you know, protected and, and cared for. We, we long to see uh, those who do evil to be punished for their evil things and, and those who do good to be rewarded for their good things. But, but ultimately, it's just not the world we live in. Innocent people go to jail all the time. Evil people walk free all the time. I don't know about all the time, but it happens. It's awful. It's heartbreaking. The world is just not fair. But thankfully, fairness was not the thing on God's mind when he came to us. He gave us what we didn't deserve, salvation, and he took what we did deserve, the punishment of our sins. From a human perspective, God unfairly paid the penalty for us and praise him for his goodness in all of that. Ultimately, I think that this epic truth, just quickly, should compel us to two different things. The first is simply this. If you haven't experienced God's good justice, if you haven't experienced this awesome, kind of backwards, unfair justice, but it's unfair to your benefit justice, today's the day. I, I really encourage you to begin a relationship with the living God. To not wait another moment, to not wait another second make this choice today. He, he loves you. He loves you so much that he died in your place for your sins. He took on a punishment he didn't deserve so that he could be up close with you 
I really encourage you to start that relationship. And it's as easy as saying, Jesus, praying and saying, Jesus, I want you to be in my life. Please forgive me for my sins. You are Lord. Teach me how to follow you. One of the unfair things about living in our world is that tomorrow is not a guarantee. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. Tomorrow something horrible might happen and, and, and you don't know. I really encourage you, if you've been waiting to make this choice, don't wait another moment. Make the choice right now to be a follower of Jesus. And the second thing I believe that this should compel us to, that this should move us forward to, is the the is coming to terms with the reality that life isn't fair and that the example we get from Jesus is to engage with that lack of fairness to the benefit of others. In other words, to let things not be fair for us so that they can be more fair for others. That we can show our love, that we can show our care for others in, in saying, you know what, it doesn't matter that this is not fair. I'm going to care for you, not so much for me. And this can be little tiny things like even though it's the other person's turn to do the dishes, you're going to do it instead. And it can be big things like, hey, I know you, you rear-ended me. It's not cool. It's not fair. But you're in a tough spot. Let's just, let's forget about it. And everything in between and even more than that. Not pursuing fairness, but pursuing to be like Christ. And, and the example we get from Christ is simply that. To allow things to not be fair for the benefit of others. I, I want you to imagine a world that would look that way. Where we would be more concerned with how to care and bless others than we would be about what's fair and just for us. With that, uh, let's say a word of prayer and then I'll say goodbye. Lord God, we praise you. We lift your name on high. You are good. Lord, lead us as we seek to, to honor you. Thank you that you chose to do the unfair thing on our behalf. We praise you and thank you, truly. Lord, we love you. And uh, we ask that you would continue to bless our little church and hold us together. And uh, we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Anyway, Grace, I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. God bless.